This morning, we're kicking off a brand new series looking at lies we believe about God, which sounds odd to say, but there are some. We're going to work literally next number of weeks. But as we get started this morning, I wanted to look at a few of the lies we used to believe when we were growing up, things our parents told us that may not have necessarily been completely true, but they did it to sometimes protect us, sometimes to see if we would actually believe them, and sometimes just for fun. So here are some lies, and it's amazing what you can find online as, as some of these go, but these are some that I can remember hearing when I was growing up, and I'm sure you can remember as well. Sitting close, too close to the TV will ruin your eyesight. I heard that one a lot growing up. How about this one? Eating spinach will make you strong. Thank you, Popeye. If you swallow your gum, it will be in your stomach for seven years. Y'all laughing because you all told that to your children. This one's most always my favorite. Drinking coffee will stunt your growth. Granted, I didn't start drinking coffee until I got to college, but still. Um, you can't go swimming for 30 minutes after eating. We've all said that one. And we all said that in hoping our children would slow down enough to maybe take a nap. So we know we did that. Here's the one that I have never heard personally, but I've had friends who have had this said to them before. The family pet went to live on a farm where he'll have lots of room to run and play forever. Think about that one for a second and you'll click in. If you eat watermelon seed, a watermelon will grow inside of you. Here's one. If you touch a toad, you'll get warts. You keep making that face, it's going to stick forever. And here's my favorite one. Chocolate milk comes from brown cows. Oh, wait, it gets better. We know this is not true. However, this statement, chocolate milk comes from brown cows, has had apparently a profound impact on people. Listen to this. 7% of U.S. adults... That 17.3 million grown-ups still believe that chocolate milk comes from brown cows. Yes, there are 17 million adults who believe this. So that says a lot about our society, and I'm going to move forward. The sad truth is, however, that most people don't know God any better than the lies that I just shared with you. They don't have a concept of who God is, what God does. And the few things we may know about God may actually not be true. My prayer as we work through this series is that you, you get an understanding of who God is. But my prayer is simply this, that you'll grow closer in your relationship to God as you learn about some of the lies that are said about him. Some of the lies that we may still believe today about this holy God. And before we really get into this, this series, I want to kind of give you some, we're going to call them the killer peas this morning, some things that cause us to have the beliefs we have about God that aren't true. And these killer peas can have a profound impact on us in what we see and how we view God the Father. The first killer P is perpetrator. There is a perpetrator. You and I have an enemy who works overtime. He's been working since the day we were born. 
And that enemy is called the father of lies in John chapter 8, verse 44. We know that Satan despises us. And John 10, 10 says he comes to steal and to destroy. Remember, the main goal of the devil is to cause you, to entice you to believe things about God that are not true. That's why he is the father of lies, because he is very good at his job, and he does everything he can to ruin lives. We saw him do this at the beginning in creation with Adam and Eve. Satan lied about God, that God did not fully love Adam and Eve, and that he wasn't fully good. And Satan used that wording to twist what God had told Adam and caused Adam and Eve to fall into sin, but it also distorted their view of God. In realizing we had this perpetrator, this one who's going to tell us lies about God, we are reminded in Ephesians 6.12 where it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. There are spiritual realities that go beyond our five senses. And there is an enemy who is going to tell you things about God which are not true. That's the first killer P. The second one, which may surprise you, is parenting. Parenting is the second killer P. And what I mean by that is how our parents treat us as we are growing up can influence how we view God. Think about this for a second. If we were raised by loving, kind parents, we tend to see God as caring and gracious. If we're raised by parents who are focused on rules and compliance, we tend to see God as obsessed with regulations and good behavior. If we're raised by parents who are critical and shaming, we tend to see God as judgmental and condemning. If we're raised by parents whose love has to be earned, we tend to see God as someone whose love is conditional. If we're raised by parents who spoil us by indulging our every wish and whim, we tend to see God as someone who gives us everything we want. If we're raised by parents who are fairly distant, we tend to see God as indifferent towards us. And if we are raised by parents who are a mixture of all these things, we tend to see God as a combination of loving, legalistic, disapproving, compassionate, harsh, indulgent, and gentle. Now listen very carefully. I don't mean that there's a direct correlation between how your parents raised you as to how you view God, because I've seen kids come from hard homes who have a love for God like nobody else, but I've also seen people who came from great homes who are distant from God who have an unhealthy view of who God is. But in general, the way your parents treat you, the way my parents treat me as I was growing up has a significant influence on how I view God. So it's not that I'm bashing parents. I am a parent. So I'm careful when I think about these things. But just so you don't feel left out this morning, parents, let me give you the third killer P. And you're going to love this one, preaching. Preaching is the third killer P, and here's why. Because you trust the preacher knows what he's talking about when it comes to God and the things of God, don't you, Brother Kyle? You trust that I know what I'm talking about. At least I hope you trust that I know what I'm talking about. 
But there are times when we struggle. Listen, when I was growing up, there were times the pastor would say something and my mother would give a funny look on her face because she wasn't sure he was saying what he's supposed to be saying, Miss Vicky. And she starts looking through her Bible to make sure the preacher's right. But preaching can affect how we view God because, and I'm going to put another group into this category, pastors, preachers, Sunday school teachers have an influence on those they teach those that they lead in their understanding of who God is. So if we're thinking about parents this morning and how parenting affects our views, we have to understand our spiritual leaders and how they can affect our view of God. Listen, if we're taught that God was all hellfire and brimstone, we tend to see God as full of wrath and eager to punish. If we're taught that God is all about the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots, we tend to be more, we see him as being interested in the rules than relationships. If we're taught that God is here to give us everything we want and to satisfy our earthly dreams, we tend to see him as an overly indulgent, I love the wording, grandfather, who is ready to grant us our every wish. Listen, how we are taught to view God in church doesn't automatically translate to how we see him as adults. But the way God is portrayed to us in church as we are growing up will have a huge impact on how we see him. So we see the perpetrator. We see parenting. We see preaching. Here's another one, projection. Projection. And let me explain what I'm talking about here. Is that we tend to have a distorted view of God when we project our flaws, our defeats, our inadequacies on him. We project all of our bad qualities onto God as a defense against admitting that these negative things are actually true about us. And so as we project these negative qualities on the God, we see him as the one who is selfish. We see him as indifferent, condemning, critical, shaming, cold, indecisive, and unkind. And you and I understand that God is nothing like that. But because we're not willing to be honest with ourselves to how different he is from us, we are unconsciously listening to this. We're trying to bring God down to our level because we're projecting all our problems onto him, thinking that we can bring God down to a human level by projecting our flaws onto him. The other side of that coin is that when we're projecting who we are in God, we're also projecting our wants, our wishes, on, and dreams onto God as if he agrees with them and is going to meet our needs. And when I do that, I falsely believe God wants all for me to be just well and expect what I ask for and to receive it. And he's going to make it happen. And the problem with projecting those views on the God, it becomes a distorted view of who he is and it keeps us in bondage because of we're thinking and it's wrong thinking about who God is. So we see it in the perpetrator. We see it in parenting and preaching, projecting. Here's the last killer P this morning, pride. Pride will get in the way. Because as a believer, there is a danger to think that we already know everything there is to know about God. Because God is incomprehensible. And because we, because we can't know him as well as we think we can, we can try to know him. We can learn about him. But we have to humble ourselves and ask him to work in us and through us. When we study his word, we learn who God is. 
when we see God work in other people's lives, we see who God is. When we go through our experiences, we see who God is, and we start to have a more accurate picture of who God is. The bad news is we have these killer peas, and they get in the way of knowing God. But there's good news this morning. God is not intimidated by these five things. He's not worried about these five things because God is ready and willing and able to help us overcome these false views of how we see him. And it's only through his help we can overcome them. This series is called The Lies We Believe About God. Here's the reason why I'm using the word lie, and it's in your outline. A lie is any, any way of looking at reality that is inaccurate, distorted, false, or inconsistent with how things actually are. A lie is a way of looking at reality that is inaccurate, distorted, false, or inconsistent with how things actually are. I said earlier that all lies come from Satan. He's going to do everything he can to make you doubt God, make you doubt Jesus, and make you doubt yourself. That's why we read in Romans 12, 2, when Paul's talking to the church in Rome, he says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. As a child of God through Jesus Christ, I'm to have a renewed mind of way of thinking differently instead of what the world tells me. Listen, today the world will tell you there is no God. The world will tell you that God's love has to be earned, which is a lie, but the world will tell you that. And when I think about the renewing of the mind, I love what Charles Stanley said. And he made this statement, which makes sense. We think about the renewing of our mind, and this is what he said. Renewing the mind is a little, little bit like re refinishing furniture. It's a two-step process. It involves taking off the old and replacing it with the new. The old is the lies you have learned to tell or were taught by those around you. It's the attitude, the idea that you have to become a part of your thinking, but you don't reflect the reality. The new is the truth. To renew your mind is to involve yourself in the process of allowing God to bring to the surface the lies that you have mistakenly accepted that you do this, your behavior will be transformed. In the process of renewing your mind, listen, it is important that you face the fact that there is to some degree some distortion and misconception that you may have about how you view God. To put it bluntly, there are some lies that you believe about God. The purpose of our time in the next few weeks is to show you the lies that we tend to believe about God that are flat out wrong. They're a mixed bag of what we believe. Listen, God has done everything he can to make himself known to us. He's done everything he can. So here's the question I want you to think about this morning as we jump into this series, and here's the question. Am I willing to do my part in getting to know God? Am I willing to do my part in getting to know God? Take your copy of God's Word. We're going to look at 
this first lie, God's love must be earned. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50 is our jumping in point this morning. The Luke chapter 7 passage is our jumping in, but we're not going to stay there. You know me well enough to know we're going to be in a few other places in Scripture. But I wanted to give you a starting point when we look at this lie, God's love must be earned. In Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36, this is what Scripture says. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. Behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster, alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. She began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with a the fragrant oil. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he, so he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Now watch the exchange starting in verse 44. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her hair, with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with a fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This woman lived a sinful life. More than likely, she was probably a prostitute. She hears Jesus is in town and knows he's been invited to eat dinner at the home of a religious leader. She may have heard him preach. She may have heard about the miracles that he's been doing. We don't know how she knows about Jesus and who he is. But what we do know that, that for her, in the depth of her being, there's something about Jesus that made him different from all the men she had been with before. And she knew the most important thing, that he was here to save the lost. Listen, she knows she's been rejected by society, but did you see in the passage, she has the courage to go to this house uninvited where Jesus is having dinner. At the risk of being humiliated and shamed, she is determined, look at this, to express her love and gratitude to a man she doesn't even know. There's something about this man, Jesus, that tells her that she would not be exposed 
exploited, she wouldn't be mean, and she wouldn't be rejected. Something about Jesus empowered her to go uninvited into his presence, wash his feet with her tears of gratitude, and pour an expensive amount of perfume on him. Something about this man, Jesus, made her feel safe, accepted, and loved in ways she had never experienced before. And it moved her in a different direction after she encountered him. This morning, I want to remind you that you and I are just like this woman. We live in a world that says love is conditional when it's best and it, ex it exploits the worst. And because many of us have grown up wondering if we're even worthy of love. And some of us this morning may be convinced that we're not worthy. Many of us may be like this woman who are wrestling with sin in our life and we're coping with the feeling of feeling unworthy of being loved in a way that potentially makes things worse. And in your outline, I have this statement. This is kind of our jumping in for this, this message this morning. The kind of love we receive here on earth has a significant impact impact on how we view the love of God, leading some of us to believe wholeheartedly the lie that God's love must be earned, that it's conditional, and that we have, a have to be perfect for him to love us. As you're writing the blanks, and let me remind you, we wrongly buy into this idea that we've got to jump through moral hoops to be loved by God, for God to even care about us. This is one of the ways the enemy damages us and destroys our lives. Listen, the love that God offers is nothing like the world's. It's not even close. It's not even the same category. So what is the love of God like? And better yet, how does it differ from the kind of love we get from others? Here's the first thing I want to show you this morning. God's love has no starting point. God's love has no starting point. Do you realize that the love we have for others has a starting point? The love a parent feels for a child begins the day they find out that child's coming into the world. February 14th, 2003. At 6 a.m. on Valentine's Day, at 6 a.m., and I'm not a morning person, but when Lainey walked in and said, I think we're pregnant, immediately I was awake. But from that point forward, I was excited and already loved with this child, which we didn't know what, he, what, it, what it, it was a boy or a girl. We had some assumptions that we were wrong, but we were already in love before she even got here because we knew she was coming. A parent feels that love the minute they know that child's coming into the world. Listen, romantic love starts the first time somebody lays eyes on that other person. I remember the first time I laid eyes on Lainey, and I just said, wow. And then when I said, you want to go on a date? She said, yes. I said, wow, again, because she said, yes. But what are you laughing at? You and I will have counseling later, John Elvin. Anyway, but the romantic love starts that way when we see that person for the first time. Think about friends. Friends don't become friends until the first time they meet and get to know each other. And whether you like it or not, the love for another person 
has a beginning. But the love that God has for you and for me has no starting point because God is eternal. He operates above space and time. But let me show you something. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, explains this, this idea that God's love has no starting point. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, it simply says this, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God is love. So here's the reasonable conclusion based on this verse. God has always loved you even before you got here. Before you came into this world, God loved you. But we live in a world where sometimes songwriters and poets will write these songs about falling in love with somebody before time began or before they even met which sounds really good in theory, but when it comes to human relationships, it's not true. Listen, we don't love someone before we meet the person. We begin to develop feelings for that person after we meet them over time. But with God, he indeed loves you before you knew him. Listen, before you were even a twinkle, before you were even a speck in the world and God, God was already in love with you. Before you existed, he loved you. While you're here, he loves you. And when you leave this world, he will continue to love you because God's love has no starting point. Here's the second thing I want to show you. God's love has no dimensions or limitations. God's love has no dimensions or limitations. Listen, the love between us has limits. Sometimes we reach our, reach our breaking point when it comes to the love we have for another person because we've been, been treated badly or been hurt by that person. And sometimes we get pushed a little further and we reach that breaking point. We stop loving that person altogether. But when it comes to God, he has no limits to his love. You can't put any perimeters around his love. Take your Bibles, turn over to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, show us that God's love has no dimension or limitation. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, the depth, and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all fullness of God. To comprehend the width, the length, the depth, the height of God. Listen, God's love can't be measured. Parents, and I asked Rachel if I ever asked her this question, and she said no, which, was, which I felt better about when I asked her the question. But parents, how many of you, your child ever came to you and asked you, how much do you love me? And you may have done this this much, which is really sweet. But if you think about it, there's a limit in there. As far as my arm stretches, how much I love you, which sounds good. And it's a beautiful picture, but it's limited and it's measured. 
The love that God has for us, it can't be measured. And sometimes we believe it can. So we must be careful because sometimes we think that God's love has, has limits. It only fits in a certain box. That's a lie that some believe. Here's a third thing we know about God. God loves you. In the simplest way, God loves you. It's hard to fathom that with 7 billion people in the world, that God can love us individually and personally. I think about another question that sometimes gets asked in families when they have multiple children, and the child walks up to you and goes, am I your favorite? And parent says, yes. I grew up with two younger brothers. I knew who the favorite was, me. Not in reality, but in my mind, I was the favorite. But we do that sometimes. But here's the thing I'm reminded of. God's love for you is personal. You are his favorite. He doesn't love you because you're a member of the human race. He loves you as a unique individual, as if there was no one else on the planet exactly like you. St. Augustine said this, God loves each of us as if there were only one of us. God wants you to know that he loves you, that you are his favorite, even though he has billions and billions of favorites, he is enamored with you and he loves you so much. He loves every single one of us. So we know God loves you. Here's the next one. God's love is emotional. God's love is emotional. There isn't a word in the English language that can capture the intensity and the positivity, I love this phrasing, of God's emotions towards us. Even God's feelings of disappointment and anger about your actions come out of him being crazy in love about you and everything that you are. But listen, I am reminded that God's love is emotional, and I'm always drawn to a specific passage in Scripture. It's Mark chapter 6, verse 34. In Mark 6, 34, listen to what it says. And when Jesus came out, he saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. It says that Jesus was moved with compassion. But notice what scripture doesn't say. It doesn't say that Jesus landed and saw a large crowd and he felt disgusted at how needy they were and irritated that they wouldn't leave him alone. Listen, it's so powerful to think that Jesus had compassion on those who were lost and fallen and they were following him. It's amazing to me to realize and think that there's a God who deeply cares about me, who has empathy for what I am going through and takes heartfelt delight in what I'm doing. He cares that much about me. When I think about the love that God has for us, this compassion, I'm drawn to the, the story of the prodigal son. And remember that, that story, that parable Jesus told. And remember there's that point when you get to Luke 15, verse 20, that the father, it says, filled with compassion, 
he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. It didn't matter that the younger son had wasted all his inheritance. It didn't matter he didn't have remorse for doing it. And it didn't matter that he hurt his family by his actions. This father loved his son, and it was a heartfelt love. It was emotion. It was compassion. It was a desire he had for him. But it's the same father who had compassion for the younger son who has to go out into the field and plead with his younger, older son, rather, to come into the celebration for the younger son. The father doesn't do this unless he has a strong, compassionate love for both of them. Remember, the younger son took the money and ran. The older son worked for his father, yet the father shows the same compassion and love for the younger son as he does for the older son. But you and I know that most fathers wouldn't have gone outside to plead with their oldest boy to come inside. But this father does. And it's the feeling that God has towards you and for me. It's a love that when we are hurt, he feels compassion. When we face difficulties, he is standing with arms open wide, joyfully waiting, joyfully for us to come back home because we have a God whose love is emotional. I'm also reminded of this. God's love is costly. God's love is costly. In the front of my Bible, I have a sticker for nine line. I put that sticker in my Bible, and there's a picture of it on the screen here in just a second. I love nine line. They're a company based out of Savannah that's run by veterans who hires veterans. But when I see that image, I'm reminded to pray for those who serve in our country. That's why I put the sticker in my Bible. I have friends that are currently serving now in the military, but I just don't pray for those in the military. I pray for those in law enforcement. Brother Kyle, I pray for you every day. I pray for the chief every day. I don't know your deputies, but I pray for them every day because God knows who they are. But I pray for these individuals. I pray for those who work for the ambulance service. I pray for these people who put their life on the line every day. Listen, true love is at its highest when a person is willing to give up his or her life to save another because true love is costly. Listen, the most quoted verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. We know that verse. We know that it cost God everything to have his son die for our sins. Jesus gave up his life so you and I can spend eternity with the Father. But Jesus also reminded the disciples the cost of following him. On two of my T-shirts that I have from Nine Line, on the back of it they have an American flag, but on one of them there's a blue stripe, and on the other, there's a red stripe. And at the bottom of that shirt, it has this scripture verse, and this is what it says. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. The love of God for us could not be expressed, and can it be expressed any higher than by Jesus dying on the cross for us? 
But here's a question I want you to think about this morning. I have a few of them here. Have you ever wondered if you would sacrifice your life so another person could live? Would you be willing to run into oncoming traffic, pushing someone out of the way, knowing that you might be hit and killed? Would you be willing to give your last piece of bread, knowing that somebody would live, but you might potentially die of starvation? Would you be willing to let another person have the last vial of a vaccine, a life-saving drug, knowing that you wouldn't make it? Listen, these are incredibly tough questions, but that's what God did for us. God pushed us out of harm's way. God gave us that last piece of bread, and he gave us that last vial of life-saving medicine. Listen, God's love expresses itself in the highest and costliest way it could when he died on a cross. When Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, died on the cross, that was the highest and costliest act of love he could show us. So God's love is costly. But also God's love is proactive. God's love is proactive. I believe one of the deepest wounds in the soul of a child is when a parent doesn't pursue them in a relationship. When a parent's more concerned about career or enjoying a social and active, rather social life, instead of having a close relationship with their child, the child knows it, feels rejected and unworthy of being loved. But the love of God is not like that because God's love compels him to pursue us. It's proactive. I go back. I go back to the prodigal son story. And I think about the father. And it's in, you don't have to turn there, but you can write this reference down. Luke 15, verse 20. And it simply says this, and he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. It was the father who had been looking out at the distance every day for his son's return. And when the son came home, Scripture says he ran to welcome him back. He didn't stand on the front porch with his arms crossed saying, I knew you were going to waste it. I knew you were going to make mistakes. I knew you'd come back groveling to live in this house. No, Scripture says that he stood on this porch looking. And when he saw his son at a distance, he ran towards him. Our heavenly father doesn't stand on the porch of heaven going, well, you messed up again. He doesn't stand and say, listen, you should have listened to me the first time when I put it in my word. No, we have a father whose love compels him to look at a distance and look for us and come to us. Listen, this kind of love should never doubt and should never leave of any doubt that he is pursuing us. Listen, if you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, it's because he pursued you first. Romans 5, 8 says this, and don't ever forget this. God demonstrated his own love towards us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While you and I are running away from God, he pursues us. And God makes it unmistakably clear that his pursuit for us is with a relentless love. 
It's relentless. He desires us. That's why he pursues us. That's why he, in that wording, is proactive. He's the one doing the pursuing. He's the one coming after us. Next one, God's love is redemptive. God's love is redemptive. How many of you grew up, and I know nobody under the age of 20 is going to have any idea what I'm talking about now. How many of you, though, grew up collecting the S&H green stamps? Y'all remember doing that? And I found a picture, and Lainey and I were talking about it. Her mom probably had some hiding in her house we didn't even know about. But when I was growing up, my brothers and I always wanted to go to the grocery store, and it was Piggly Wiggly for us in Pooler because that's where you got the S&H green stamps. And we'd always look to see how many came off the spinner. Remember those? And we'd get the task. My brother and I had the task of taking them and putting them in the booklets. And then we looked in the catalog to see what we could get with them. And we've got, oh, we get 15 more stamps. We can get that. Or we get two more books. We can get that. And it worked pretty good unless we were vetoed by my parents because they wanted something. But I remember that. I know some of you remember there used to be an actual store you could go to to redeem these. I know for us, it was at the Piggly Wiggly. They had a wall with all these cool things, but you used those green stamps to redeem them. Listen, God's love is a love that redeems. God's love led him to come to what we're going to call the green stamp store called Earth, and he redeemed us by having his son die on the cross for our sins. Now, it sounds crazy, but for those who believe in Jesus, Jesus was more than just a man. There are some in this world, I told you there are some who don't believe God exists. There are some who don't believe Jesus was the son of God. They also don't believe that dying on the cross paid for anything. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You and I can't really understand God's love until you understand that you have been redeemed. God lovingly and sacrificially gave the life of his only son to redeem us and it's a love that is redemptive. You and I have been redeemed because of what Jesus did. Here's my last point. God's love is unmerited. We live in a world where love is often has to be earned. Another way, earthly love is conditional. If you act nicely, people love you more and will treat you kindly. If you act badly, People love you a lot less and treat you harshly or unkind or rudely. We live in a world where love has to be merited. But listen, it's in your outline. The love of God can't be earned, it can't be merited, and it, or achieved. C.S. Lewis put it this way. The Christian does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. The pleasure of God is affected by how we act. The pleasure. Listen, if we break the commandment, thou shalt not steal when we rob a bank, yeah, God's going to be displeased with us for what we did. 
But if we obey God when we're caring for an aging parent or that widowed parent or grandparent, that is pleasing to God. Listen, our obedience and disobedience, listen, certainly affects the pleasure and displeasure of God, but never his love. Is God disappointed when we do dumb things? Yes. Is God overjoyed when we do the correct thing? Yes. Listen, yes, there are things in life you have to earn. You've got to earn a degree. They're not just going to give them to you. You've got to work. You have to work at a job. You have to work to get a leaner body. You have to work at these things. Listen, there's no magic thing to get it for you. Because life doesn't hand us the things we want or should have. But you and I are fortunate to have a God that gives us the most incredible gift of all, his love. And even though we keep trying to do things to earn it, there's nothing we can do because it's a love that he has for us. It's not the love the world offers. His love is eternal. It's immeasurable. It's individual. It's emotional. It's costly. It's proactive. It's redemptive, unmerited, and so much more. The definition of God's love that struck me the most was a quote I read in J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. And this is what he wrote. God's love is an exercise of his goodness towards individual sinners, whereby having identified himself with their welfare, he has given his son to be their savior and now brings them to know and enjoy him in a covenant relationship. God's love, I love this statement, is an exercise of his goodness towards us, all of us who fall short of God's glory and God's perfection. But God has aligned himself with our welfare and wants to have an intimate relationship with us. Listen, the love of God is unlike anything you will ever know or experience here. But the only way to experience the love that I've talked about this morning is by having a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Every head bowed and every eye closed. In just a moment, John Eldon is going to lead us in the song, Oh, How He Loves Us. And it's a reminder of the love that God has for us. It's a love. It's a love that is eternal. It's a love that is immeasurable. It's individual. It's emotional. It's costly. It's proactive. It's redemptive. And so much more. But in order for you to experience the love that God has for you, you have to know him by knowing his son. In the message you've learned this morning that God's love is costly. It cost him everything in sacrificing his son for our sins, paying a price that we should have paid. That is a love. And it's a love that's received when you ask Jesus to be Lord and Savior. So my prayer this morning is that if you don't know Jesus, that you would ask him to be Lord and Savior this morning. But I also ask and pray for those who feel like you've wandered and feel like that you've done things that God can't love you for what you've done. Remember, God is just like the father in the prodigal story. He is standing on the porch looking for you and waiting for you to come back. Father, my prayer is that you would use this time, Father, to speak to the hearts of individuals. 
And Father, whether they need to stay in their pew and, pew and pray, or Father, just come to the front and pray. My prayer is that you would just move in a mighty way this morning. And Father, that we have learned this morning that your love does not have to be earned. Father, you loved us before we even got here. You love us now. And more importantly, you're going to love us for eternity. For that, I am grateful. During this time of response, my prayer is that you would just move in a mighty way, Father. And all glory would be to you. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Let's all stand.